Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 267, my guest is Joe Burnett, or you may have seen him on Twitter as 3Capital, working with Mimesis Capital and writing on Bitcoin. So today we're talking a little bit about how big the market for Bitcoin actually is. Maybe we have been underestimating it. So in this one, we also talk about valuing companies and equity in a post-hyper-Bitcoinization world and what people will do in terms of growth deflation and how is that going to work. We also talk about Contango, which is another popular topic in the Bitcoin Twitter sphere. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally, corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Lend at HodlHodl is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. If you have stablecoins like USDT, you can lend them and earn attractive returns. HodlHodl's lending allows you to earn 25% APR on average, one of the highest returns on the market. Also, if you've got Bitcoin and you need liquidity, you can put them up as collateral so you can get some fiat stablecoin liquidity and without trusting your money to any single party because with Lend Lend at HodlHodl, your Bitcoin collateral is locked in a two of three escrow. Lend at HodlHodl is a Bitcoin DeFi allowing peer-to-peer lending. So you can set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. If you're interested in Bitcoin mining, Compass is an online marketplace making it easier for you to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. Compass help you buy an ASIC and secure hosting at facilities around the world that they have vetted for you. So for for years, we've all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now with Compass, you can tap into those economies of scale and get reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. Check out episode 259 with Whit Gibbs where we spoke about the process and where Compass offer the hardware and hosting bundle, eliminating the need for you to have advanced technical knowledge and so you can get started quickly. Visit compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. Joe, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Joe, I've been following some of your work. I see uh, you're one of those uh, young Bitcoin Zoomer gun guys who's uh, been writing a lot of interesting pieces and, uh, you know, wanted to get you on the show and chat a little bit. Yeah, no, it's great to be on the show. I'm a longtime listener, I guess. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Uh, That's cool. So, yeah, let's hear a little bit about you. How'd you get into the Bitcoin aspect of it? What was the appeal for you? Yeah, for sure. So I first uh, got into Bitcoin, I guess, you know, I guess I would say pretty late, like around 2017, summer 2017. And I remember following it on Reddit and thinking, I have no idea what this is. So it took me 
months before I even decided to, you know, put any of my own personal funds into it. And eventually I was like, you know what, might as well just throw a little bit of money into, at the time I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I put some money into some altcoins or whatever, but I had been investing like in, in stocks, you know, since really young kid. And, uh, and, you know, of course, at the end of the bull run, everything just went crazy. And I made like 10 X and obviously didn't sell at the top, but on some random coin. And I was kind of hooked ever since. Uh, of course, now I'm, I'm definitely Bitcoin only, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, af- after uh, I saw that, like, you know, what the potential of like, you know, what this stuff is and, and kind of just got hooked, I, I fell down the rabbit hole after that. So Joe, I've seen you've been writing a little bit about how big the market for Bitcoin really could be, because there's different numbers that go around. What's your way of thinking about this question? Yeah, so I guess... First, before uh, you know, I, I start to like address what I think the you know potential market size of, of Bitcoin could be. I think it's important to like understand you know like what what we're, what possible uh, markets we're comparing it to, and like why Bitcoin could you know temper uh, possibly replace uh, certain parts of you know the financial system. So Bitcoin is like you know the world's best monetary good, and it's this good because it's perfectly scarce, portable, durable. The visible, etc. And because of these, you know, unique properties, you know, individuals or corporations are incentivized to save Bitcoin. And in a way, like Bitcoin is is like a game theoretic shelling point that individuals have been converging on. And so those that converge on Bitcoin first are economically rewarded. And uh, even at full adoption, Bitcoin is still the ultimate savings technology because everyone needs money. And so one one way uh, that many people have thought about uh, comparing Bitcoin to like traditional world or the analog world uh, is comparing it to gold. You know, you hear Bitcoin is digital gold. And so gold's market cap is is roughly around uh, $10 trillion. Uh, and Bitcoin just became the, the equivalent of, of physical gold uh, in the digital world. Uh, it would be half a million dollars you know, per Bitcoin. And so that's just, uh, in my opinion, one of the like the bearish uh, possible scenarios for Bitcoin, because I think comparing Bitcoin to gold uh, would be a lot like comparing, you know, Alexander's, Alexander Graham Bell's uh, telephone to the iPhone. It's just, yes, it has the uh, basic functionality of, you know, the telephone, but there's just so much more. And the properties of the iPhone and the properties of Bitcoin are so much superior to the analog world that that's just the tip of the iceberg of what Bitcoin could possibly be worth. Right, yeah. And so I think that's also a common, you know, uh, even on prior shows I've discussed with VJ around different potential um, cycle or valuation models and gold being one of the common ones. And then I guess the idea is Bitcoin actually sucks up not just gold, but also some of the market for, you know, monies today and potentially some of the other stores of value that the world is using because the money today fiat money is broken and flawed and that's why people cannot use it to save yeah absolutely so as i said like the gold uh case for bitcoin is is in my opinion like one of the most bearish uh low level cases uh we could go a step further and say bitcoin will eat uh or replace gold plus uh m2 money supply which m2 money supply is basically money in your checking and your savings account so fiat money uh that we would think of today and if you replace the total value of m2 and gold then it would we would already be sitting at roughly five million dollars per bitcoin 
And we could even uh, go potentially even further uh, if we decided to add gl all global debt into what Bitcoin could possibly eat, uh, considering, you know, interest rates are basically at all time lows and people that uh, hold, you know, these hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of credit or debt, uh, financial markets, uh, they're, they're looking for, you know, a safe store of value and Bitcoin could potentially uh, replace debt. And so if you add in global debt to uh, the potential valuation of Bitcoin, in addition to gold and M2, you could be sitting at $17 million. Right. And so I think we have to distinguish it. Like one point that's important to make here is that all the money in the world, I mean, yes, fiat money is inflating and they're making more of it, but the money exists in someone's accounts, right? But really what we're talking about here is the relative valuations of those things changing, right? So if there's a certain amount of money in the certain amount of fiat you know, dollars circulating around out there, it's really sitting in people's accounts and it's just moving from some people's accounts to other people's accounts. But really what, what's going on here is people are changing their mental you know, valuation of that US dollar or their faith in that US dollar or in obviously in other fiat monies also. So it's kind of just a, a change in the relative valuation of Bitcoin versus other fiat monies or, or, or versus fiat monies or versus some of these potential stores of value, things like historically gold and even, um, as you're saying, the bond uh, and bond market and the debt markets that are out there. And I guess this also plays into that whole theme, which often I've mentioned on the show and other people talk about, is this idea that we're shifting from a very debt-based economic system into a more equity-based one, where the incentive is not to... The fiat standard rewards people who take on a lot of debt and who can play that debt game well. The Bitcoin standard will be different. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, the Bitcoin standard, it likely won't be you know, based on debt. Um, and in fact, uh, we we are. I expect that the, the debt market in, in a Bitcoin world will be uh, very small, almost nothing, uh, or at least very short term debt. Nothing like you know thirty year bonds like like we'd see or ten year treasuries or whatever. Uh, we we just likely won't see uh, people willing to loan out their Bitcoin for for that long because uh, Bitcoin will likely be still appreciating in value, uh, you know, year after year due to you know uh, just like the price of tomorrow. Uh, Jeff Booth's book, just growth deflation, and so so uh, throwing after like throwing out you know those those like price potential price targets, it, it's it's very difficult to like estimate what what a single Bitcoin uh, could be worth because we we really don't know the propensity to hold Bitcoin that that individuals and corporations and like local government governments uh, may have. We also don't know how how, how much people uh, will value you know Bitcoin's risk free nature and and no dilution risk. And so it's 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 possible that like people that have significant amounts of wealth won't necessarily you know have all their wealth in, in stocks or have all their wealth in real estate. It's it's more likely that they would have a large portion of their portfolio uh in in bitcoin going forward yeah that that's a really tough question because it will be like people have to figure out okay so assuming full adoption people would then have to think about what kind of return quote-unquote return really what we're talking about is the growth deflation rate or the kind of the gentle uh beneficial deflation that we would all be experiencing if we all lived under a bitcoin hard money standard and then also if people want to get a return or at least an increase in their purchasing power above and beyond what that normal amount is that's where they're going to have to take some risk and put that into some kind of equities or into some kind of project uh to try and actually generate return so how are you thinking about that and how 
how are you sort of, I guess, theorizing about how that might come about? Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how like the equity and stock markets uh, develop over time, because we've already kind of seen like some sort of, of Bitcoin lending market like developing, like with things like BlockFi, where people are going out and earning either 6% or I guess if you have a large amount of Bitcoin, it's roughly about 2% uh, now. And obviously that's, you know, more debt based, uh, not equity based. But we would, you know, we could expect uh, Bitcoin holders to, you know, basically determine at what, you know, equity risk premium they they are willing to part ways uh, with their Bitcoin. And, you know, in, in like today's world, uh, when people are pricing equities, uh, many use like the U.S. Treasury yield as like their risk free rate. And, and, and that's kind of true because, you know, the government can always print more money if needed uh, or tax, you know, the population. But obviously the issue with that is that the dollars that you get back in 10, 30 years or five years uh, may not be worth much, uh, but they are likely to never default. And so when valuing like equities or stocks in today's world, uh, you know, you attempt to like do a discounted cash flow model. So you predict, you know, your future cash flows that a company uh, would generate, and then you discount those cash flows back to, you know, the present value value using a discount rate. And, you know, in today's world, uh, this discount rate could be the 10-year treasury plus an equity risk premium. And the equity risk premium is simply the reward that you would expect uh, to be compensated for the extra risk you're taking by investing in a company rather than like lending money to the government itself. Now, in a Bitcoin world, like we're talking about, uh, an equity risk premium would be the excess return that investing in stocks uh, is is expected to provide over, you know, a risk-free real return of simply holding Bitcoin. Or this could also be based off, you know, uh, like lightning pools, uh, the potential, you know, risk-free um, or at least non-custodial, non-counterparty uh, uh, risk-free uh, that you can earn, you know, lending out uh liquidity on the Lightning Network. But the the equity risk premium in the Bitcoin world is, is definitely very difficult to predict uh, because it will ultimately, ultimately just come down to what Bitcoin holders are willing to, to part ways with their Bitcoin app because uh, they will be the ones that, that basically determine the risk premiums that they are willing to accept for you know, giving up their Bitcoin. And so anyone can can give their best guess on on what this will be uh based off you know like the the six percent as uh, many are earning off something like BlockFi, we would expect the equity risk premium to be slightly higher than a debt risk premium because equity is just simply more riskier than debt and so it could be something like uh anywhere from zero to thirty percent maybe ten percent would be a, a good gotcha yeah so um i guess Walking that back, just for listeners who aren't as savvy with finance and economics and you know finance classes and stuff that some of us would have had at uni, the point with um, the current modeling for a lot of equities is they do what's called discount cash flow. So for example, they take into account the time value of money and they put that and typically they'll use you know the risk-free rate or some, some kind of rate there and uh, that, uh, plus, as you're saying, that premium and if you, as an example, say the total of that is 5% or is 10%, you might say, okay, I'm expecting a cash flow of $1,000 in one year's time. And I'm going to discount that by, you know, let's say we're using the rate of 5%, you would, you know, put that $1,000 over 1.05. And then let's say you're getting 
you know, $1,100 in two years' time. And then you're dividing that by 1.05 squared. And so the idea is you're doing this to try and account for the time value of money because you could have been using that money to do something else. In this case, you could have been holding the 10-year treasury or you could maybe you could have deployed that capital somewhere else. And this is something that entrepreneurs will use to try to, and investors will try to use to figure out, are they actually making good use of the capital? But then now that's the current world, right? And then translating that into the Bitcoin world is a little bit different because there is no quote unquote, you know, government bond risk-free rate. We are now talking in Bitcoin terms and Bitcoin has no uh, inflation beyond the 21 million. And so it's, I guess it's an open question. And um, we have to think about what do we think the if you will, the growth deflation rate of the economy, right? So someone like uh, some of the Austrian economists like, uh, you know, uh, Salerno or Hulsman, who I've interviewed on the show, um, or Philip Bargus, um, who, who I've interviewed and talking about deflation and what would that sort of look like in this kind of deflationary environment. Um, and so I guess if you had to kind of guess at least what, what, what do you think um, these, these kind of numbers might be, um, in terms of the growth deflation rate, or maybe Jeff Booth might use the term technology deflation. Um, what kind of numbers are you thinking about there? Yeah, it's a great question because it, inflation is always like a, a tricky topic when you talk about it on Twitter or, wh- or wherever because everyone has different definitions. You know, some people will say it's it's the growth and and the money supply itself, and then others will say no, it's it's a, like a CPI measure. I guess just for this answering this question, we're obviously talking about you know, technology deflation. So more of like CPI type uh, price inflation that you'll see when you're buying, you know, food, clothing or whatever. And so based off the research that uh, we've done, uh, we think it's it's realistic to maybe expect a, a an average like Bitcoin consumer price uh, inflation to fall somewhere between 0% and then even negative 10%. Uh, like the current system uh, that we have, you know, attempts to produce, you know, supposedly uh, 2% CPI inflation. And since the, you know, the Bitcoin monetary standard operates under a fixed supply, uh, Bitcoin savers will be the ones rewarded with, you know, future productivity in addition to the entrepreneurs that are able to generate that future uh, uh, advanced productivity. And in, in the savers, the Bitcoin savers will be rewarded through lower and lower prices. It's hard to know uh, what that, you know, how, how, how quickly prices would decline in a Bitcoin world. Uh, but it, it is reasonable to expect prices to decline. Yeah, this is such an interesting topic and it's hard to estimate what that's going to be. But we can sort of have an intuition there that over time prices are going to be falling and we will all be better for it as consumers because the price of the goods we buy will be coming down over time. Now, the typical question that might come at this point, and we've had this question on the show before also, but just you know to sort of have it out there, what happens for entrepreneurs when prices are falling? How do they make it work? when um, they are operating in a deflationary or, you know, a growth deflation or technology deflation environment? Is it that their revenue is falling, but also their costs are falling too? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that a lot of the like traditional Keynesians will will definitely get stuck on because in addition to investment, they'll say, oh, well, no one's going to spend their Bitcoin when you can 
hodl it and, and spend it and buy something bigger or, or better next year. And we, we've kind of like uh, debunked this myth uh, just with, you know, computers or iPhones itself. You know, computers are getting faster and faster uh, every year. Uh, you have like Moore's Law where, where the processors are getting faster and faster. In addition, you know, the iPhones are, are getting better and better every year, but that doesn't necessarily stop people from buying iPhones. Now, from the investment perspective, it's, it's kind of uh, what you were saying. Uh, just because uh, you as a business might have to lower your price to remain competitive in the market, uh, your costs are also going down. So, so your the companies uh, and the suppliers that you're buying your your supplies from are are declining as well. And so, yes, your revenue, your top top line growth may be declining, but but as long as you are remaining competitive in the market, uh, the the Bitcoin that you're earning year after year uh, will be more 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 and more valuable. Yeah, and the funny thing is for and then when we translate this now to an employer, oh, sorry, an employee's perspective, they may see well. There's a few different scenarios, and I spoke about this also in my, one of my earlier episodes with Philip Bargas, so people can check that out. But at a high level, your salary as an employee, let's say, might stay the same, and your purchasing power might rise. Or even more kind of crazy to think about is that your salary might be falling, but your purchasing power might be increasing even still. Yeah, absolutely. It is it's something strange to think about and and many people will will have difficult time wrapping their heads around that idea. But yeah, I mean, I think I think what would probably be reasonable to expect is is throughout your career your salary like might actually just remain the same because you yourself become, you know, more productive. You you graduate from job A to job B and you slowly move up the ranks. Um, um, but yeah, it, it is something very uh, unique to think about. And, and I, I don't really think it, would, it will create like any major issues. I think as long as, you know, you, you, your personal prices uh, continue, continue to decline, it's not a big deal that, that your income either remains the same or slightly declines. Yeah, yeah. And also... There's also this question as well. One of your articles, you're talking about this idea of what store of value percentage is in equities? Because as we were saying, you know, the fiat money is broken, people can't save into it. And so they are reliant on trying to put some of their savings into the stock market. How are you thinking about trying to estimate that as a percentage? And what what kind of um, numbers are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did uh, for our research was we basically created a very simple DCF model, uh, which again is like about discounted cash flows. And we created a basically a fictional company called Wyoming uh, Red Ribeyes. And it would basically be like a small cap uh, consumer staples a beef supplier that raised cattle and then sells the premium beef to the US. And so we, we created a very simple DCF model based off uh, what 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 this company would be like uh, in you know today's world where prices are increasing and and as and as far as prices that's their cost and their their the price that they're charging for their goods and so and we and and we also assumed that uh, that you know the amount of ribeyes that they were selling. Uh, was growing, and, but in a Bitcoin world, uh, it was kind of different. So the the price and and their costs were actually decreasing. And so, as you can imagine, that changes how you know revenue is going to be uh, growing over time or or not growing over time. And it also changes how you know their costs are going to be growing over time. And in the article, I go like much more in depth on on 
exactly how we created the model. But uh, in short, it basically reveals that that with assuming a you know negative five percent uh, price deflation and Bitcoiners uh, looking for a ten percent equity risk premium when valuing uh, this this specific company, we estimated that you know the share price of Wyoming Red Ribeyes uh, would actually. De- uh, be worth roughly 77% less than than it would be valued in today's world. And so looking at that, we, ca- we kind of like came to the conclusion that 77% of maybe, you know, the entire equity market or S&P 500, generally speaking, uh, is, is not necessarily looking for uh, an investment or, or like trying to grow. Uh, they're really just looking for like a generic store of value. And so it's possible that a large portion of stock market or equity market could reallocate uh, to Bitcoin. Yeah, so then that puts up a new price in terms of what the potential, like if you were to, like hypothetically, if we were to just kind of add those numbers up, uh, what kind of numbers does it give you in terms of Bitcoin price? Yeah, so going back to what we originally talked about, where we had gold and M2, global debt, and now if we add, you know, 50% of stocks, and then we could also add about 50% of real estate, because same with equities, people are using real estate to store wealth through time. Uh, if we, and this is pretty much, you know, uh, in today's world, uh, Bitcoin sucking up pretty much as much value as it possibly can, uh, it would be about 26 million per Bitcoin, which is definitely, uh, many people w- would laugh or, or say that's out there, but but it, it kind of makes sense if people are, are uh, you know, invested in these these equities that have, you know, massive uh, PE ratios or even, you know, PE ratios that don't exist because these companies don't even make money, uh, people will, will move that 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 capital uh into you know something safe or that has you know no dilution risk and has no counterparty risk that's bitcoin so important to note that that is 26 million in today's terms you know because in 10 years time or 15 years time 20 years time you know the actual nominal number might be different but what we're talking about is kind of just loosely speaking 26 million dollars in today's purchasing power is roughly what we're talking about right yeah absolutely i think looking at specific price targets for Bitcoin uh, in nominal terms, it likely won't make too much sense in the future just because, I mean, you can you can go look at the price of Bitcoin and, you know, the Turkish lira. I'm sure if you if you looked back five years uh, ago today, you would laugh, people there might laugh at you for saying what the price would be. Um, but, it, but it makes sense because nominally uh, in this, this fiat currency that's kind of, you know, just being debased uh, nonstop due to the extremely aggressive fiscal policy combined with endless quantitative easing and monetary policy, the nominal price simply just won't make too much sense. (laughs) Back to the show after a word for the sponsors. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services. And if you haven't already, make sure you check out my recent episode with Parker Lewis, 263, where we spoke about the products that they've got and also the loans that they offer also. So Unchained Capital can help you set up a multi-signature vault where you hold two keys and they hold one key. If you need help, they offer a concierge service where you can pay, they will teach you multi-signature, they will ship you some hardware wallets, they'll answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Use the code LAVERA for a discount on that and make sure you check out their website. They've got all sorts of incredible content. I highly recommend reading through Parker Lewis's series, the Gradually Then Suddenly series. You can find all of that at unchained.com. 
Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Cold Card. The Cold Card has all sorts of features like the ability to use it air-gapped. So you literally never have to plug it into a computer if you don't want to. You can get a micro SD card and you can plug your Cold Card into the wall or you can get a cold power and power it that way. And then you can use it with wallets like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum or Blue Wallet and do air-gapped transactions. The Cold Card also has all sorts of features and high security at such a relatively low price point. You can use it in a single signature wallet or as part of a multi-signature wallet also. So go and get yours at coinkite.com and use the code Levera to get a discount. And while we're talking about hardware wallets and securing your coins, have you thought about backups? CypherSafe.io are producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel. So it comes in a wheel shape, it's compact, it masks the words of your seed as well, and you slide in some tiles, four tiles for each word, and that helps you keep the backup. Don't just rely on that piece of paper that comes with your hardware wallet. That is not fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper-evident. So make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go to cyphersafe.io and order your device now. Use the code LIVERA for a discount. Back to the show. Yeah, exactly. And another point to consider is that the world we live in today has all of these various institutional arrangements that push people down a certain pathway. A quick example is the setup. So in Australia, it's called superannuation. I know in the US, it's called 401k. uh, And people have like their IRAs and so on. And basically, the setup is basically that people are pushed into storing all this money into the stock market. Because again, coming back to that base problem, we were saying you can't save with fiat money. So people are pushed into, you know, chasing for yield or chasing into, uh, and that pushes a lot more money into the stock market or into the bond market or potentially even the property market that might not have otherwise gone there. Because if we were living under a gold standard, hypothetically, or today, a Bitcoin standard, those people might not have taken it on themselves to invest so strongly into the equity market like they do today. Because as a system, many countries around the world have kind of pushed their employees and you know people into this track and so we've it's like a path dependence thing we've been pushed into this path and the bitcoin future may not necessarily be like that yeah exactly well like you know bitcoin like i said it's the world's best monetary good and and the best monetary good is is going to preserve your purchasing power through time it's going and that's what it does it's a monetary good is is it allows you to send value or wealth through space and through time and in today's world our our money is just fundamentally broken and people have started to replace you know their savings with uh, their 401k uh, and which obviously just includes you know stocks bonds REITs so real estate um, and all sorts of different uh, risky uh, assets that act, that actually have risk <laughs> Um, uh, and instead of your money, which which is supposed to be safe or ideally should be safe. Yeah, it's a great irony. Is the great irony here is that if you go out and sell financial products, it's like no, you need to be a registered financial advisor. You need to be licensed. Blah blah blah. And they do all this stuff. But the irony is they haven't done well at actually helping people save themselves from the problems. It's just this system has layered on and tacked on all these different interventions to deal with the problems brought about by the first few interventions. And now we're just living in this trash kind of as a, as my friend Pierre Richard would say, is the high velocity 
scarcity, trash economy, right? Yeah, exactly. And to me, it will be interesting interesting to see how like the financial advising space uh, progresses. Because obviously, like you're saying, n- nowadays, they basically say, well, diversify into pretty much everything. You buy stocks and you buy real estate and you buy bonds and, and your stocks need to be in US, uh, US equities and they need to be like foreign equities and they need all this different stuff. And, and at the end of the day, you're just kind of like putting up all of your eggs in 500 different baskets and and you don't even really know what your money's doing or where it's going or what what you're funding. And so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, in the future if if people even need a financial advisor. I, I kind of suspect that you the average person that it's not, you know, ex- extremely wealthy, I guess, uh, will just save Bitcoin because that makes it a lot easier. There's a lot less risk taking and you still still earn the 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 safe uh, real return that you'll be rewarded by just, you know, the deflationary uh, technology uh, advancement that, you know, entrepreneurs will be basically giving you. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to think about it because in a very, obviously I'm speaking in a very loose sense, it's kind of like holding Bitcoin is like holding an index fund that tracks all of humanity's productivity growth. And so as, you know, the entrepreneurs all around there, all out there are working hard to try to accumulate capital and then put that into a business that can produce products and services even cheaper than you know some other entrepreneur or even better than some other entrepreneur we as consumers all benefit from that and here's the other benefit as employees guess what the the capital that those entrepreneurs are accumulating and investing into that business it makes us more productive as employees when we are an employee if we are an employee in that business so it's just a massive benefit all around and i think this is one of those things where people look at rich people and say oh see the rich people they're holding us down and but the reality is how many yachts and things that Jeff Bezos has doesn't impact the ability of people like you or me to enjoy our lives. But the reality is the capital invested by you know these rich people and billionaires and so on is making our lives better uh, in, in the sense that we can buy products cheaper. And it also Im- increases the productivity of our labor because as employees, we're able to use advanced machinery or computers and the internet and printers and whatever other technology that we need to actually do our jobs that's you know, for employees yeah absolutely I think it kind of goes to the idea of, of the the cancel on effect where you know the the people that are being rewarded uh, in, in today's society are already very wealthy um, because quantitative easing you know purchases uh, bonds and lowers yields and that bumps up the asset prices of everything to and and that and a, def- uh, a debt-based monetary system like we have today that kind of keeps the economic machine uh, going and I think like you said, in, in a Bitcoin world, the technology and, and the growth that we see actually get allocated to to the people and 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 to um, what 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 actually helps everybody. And I think part of this this like interesting dynamic is, is why we're seeing the rise of, of socialism and MMT because people you know uh, are, have kind of recognized that it's kind of rigged that that everyone uh, is kind of just a debt slave and and the people that get rewarded when stocks go up are, aren't the people that, you know, have a small amount of money in their 401k or don't have any money or they're just in debt up to their eyes. The, the people that get rewarded are the people that are simply own tons of real estate or, or tons of stocks. And, and it's kind of a big swift a switch that, that could happen. Uh, it's very interesting. So the change to an equity-based economy, it might end up being that a typical family might, you know, store 
you know, stacks that basically, and each person is earning money and they'll be stacking that away into, you know, hardware wallet, multi-sig, whatever. Um, and, you know, there'll be a, a gamut of options, right? Some of those people will be using like, you know, a hybrid sort of unchained capital style multi-sig sort of thing, or others might just be doing it fully self-sovereign on their own open source wallets and things like that. And then they'll just be saving up to buy the things that they need, whether that's the house or the, you know, family car or whatever it is that they need. Um, and as opposed to now, where the model is more like, no, just go into debt for everything and any money spare gets put into is kind of allocated away by these, you know, this massively bloated financial services industry who are all clipping the ticket on you at, you know, the registered advisors and blah, 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 because you've got to be a super genius to be able to invest your money. Like, I think that those, I guess, high level, I'm thinking that's, you know, the long-term vision of how I see it going. Um, but how, how are you thinking about that kind of idea? So I think a very similar to that, I, like I was talking about, I don't think people necessarily have financial advisors anymore. I think that people simply, you know, save Bitcoin, likely, hopefully, uh, using their own uh, private keys, whether it's with a multi-sig solution like Unchained Capital or Spectre wallet, um, or just you know a single sig wallet. And I, I, I don't think that the people, the average person, uh, will be taking you know the risk of of investing in different stocks. Like the average person, whether you're you know an engineer, a doctor or a lawyer or, or just, you know, someone that works in a factory, you'll focus more on specializing your labor and that specific you know, job, that specific task. You will also have to be an expert stock picker. And even in today's world, like there aren't really that many expert stock pickers. So people are kind of just throwing money out at, you know, GameStop or any random meme stock that, that is uh, popular for the week. And that's definitely not that great for society. And I think it, the world would be a much better place if people could just use uh, effective money that that actually allows them to save for the future. And then they can focus on more important things in life instead of random finance stuff that doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) And so I guess in that model, in that vision, maybe high net worth individuals might still use some kind of family office for their own advanced level tax planning and estates and all that kind of thing. And maybe, you know, some mix of investing. But the average person out there and most people are just going to be stacking sats and that will just be a return to just what we used to call saving right um so i guess that's one way that you know we might hypothesize this plays out um also another thing i know you've been writing on is this whole contango thing so let's get into this so joe what is contango yeah so contango is a really interesting thing in the bitcoin Contango is when the futures price of Bitcoin trades higher than the spot price. So for example, I'm just going to make up numbers right now, but the July futures contract could be trading at $65,000 and spot Bitcoin could be trading at $60,000. And so sometimes when this happens in more like traditional commodity markets, it's because there's like a cost of storage. So it could be with oil. Uh, it could trade up higher. The, the futures contract could t- trade higher than the spot price because no one wants to store the oil and the meat or however so or 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 it could trade the futures price could also trade less than the spot price but in the bitcoin uh futures market uh, it trades in contango which means futures price is higher uh than the spot price so a lot of people have questioned what is driving like premium why does it fit in my opinion it's it's because of of people demanding to go leverage long because obviously uh over the last few 
months if, if you've been leveraged along. Uh, it's been a pretty profitable trade. And if you've been short Bitcoin, that's been a very unprofitable trade. But there's two basic ways to get leveraged long Bitcoin in futures market. So the first way would be using like the perpetual swap, which this is probably uh, if you've been on like BitMEX or Durbit or whatever, this is probably like the most common way that, you know, the average person uh, would see. And you basically can just buy uh, what's called a perpetual futures contract, which actually charges a funding rate every eight hours. So this funding rate is typically paid uh, by the longs to the shorts because a lot of people want to leverage long Bitcoin. And I think the last I looked at it, uh, this funding rate, if you annualized it over like the past month, uh, it would it would have been like about 35% annualized. So you so if you're going leverage long Bitcoin uh, using the per- perpetual swap, you'd be charged, you'd be paying the shorts uh, like 35% annually, roughly. And so another way to go leverage long Bitcoin, if you don't want to pay that 35%, that could change every eight hours. So, so if Bitcoin's going up a lot, that uh, annualized rate could be extremely high. You could also do a, a four futures contract. So for example, you could you could leverage long the June futures contract. And right now that trades, I think at roughly, depending on the exchange, maybe about a 25% premium. So if you uh, were take more uh, inclined to take like a, a leverage long position that you had no intention of selling uh, anytime uh, soon, maybe like, or at least wait until June or July, then that's probably a better way to go about it because you're charged basically less for going long. The shorts are making less uh, if they if they are, are shorting that or there's just, there's just less of a premium. And so I guess a, a lot of people uh, have, have questioned like, why, why does this exist? Because theoretically, uh, or not theoretically, many, many funds are already doing this where you buy Bitcoin and then you short the July futures contract and you can actually capture that, that 25% annualized spread. And it's, it's, per, it's not risk-free, but uh, the only risk is mainly uh, exchange risk. Like does the exchange custody the coins correctly and do, are they not going to get hacked? And as long as you're willing to take that risk, uh, you can earn, you know, 25% annualized uh, no matter what the price of Bitcoin does. And so a lot of people, uh, have been discussing that that this uh, basically simple arbitrage trade is sucking up a lot of coins off off the market because to perform this trade on Kraken, Durbit, Binance, or wherever you need to buy Bitcoin to do it, and so it's a it's a very interesting dynamic where there's this very large uh, premium that that people can arbitrage out, and and it still hasn't disappeared yet, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, right. That the person doing that trade in some sense they are capping their upside because if you like let's say you're a bitcoiner trying to do this do that trade you are basically saying i'm giving up the future upside above and beyond what that future contract is um so this kind of makes a little bit more sense for people who are usd denominated if you will so if you're a us dollar person uh if you're a fund who is trying to make us dollars then this is a way to capture to make that return um but yeah certainly it's a very interesting phenomenon that we're seeing and i think it just fundamentally comes down to more and more people are, are realizing what Bitcoin is. They're trying to buy it. They're trying to go long. Um, maybe we've got a lot of DGEN gamblers out there. Who knows? And so fundamentally, it's just all these people running in to try and buy Bitcoin. And then it's creating this opportunity for the arbitrages to do that trade and try to get what it quote unquote.
quote risk free return. Obviously, you are mm-hmm. taking some custodial risk, and you're kind of you're you're putting some trust into the platforms that are helping you do this. But uh, I guess the typical person operating on those platforms is sort of saying, okay, I'm comfortable taking that level of risk, or maybe whatever in their mind they think, okay, it's a regulated platform. The government will help me if something goes wrong. Blah blah blah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that's really interesting about it being a 25% plus annual return, annualized return right now is looking at, you know, the current bond market that exists. So the the, the rates that you can you can earn on like a 30-day treasury are, are pretty much zero. And so so these these uh these high, you know, yields that you can be earning that are not not entirely risk-free but but very low risk uh in my opinion are are, are very uh interesting. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how this develops over time and and if the uh premium starts to compress. I think I think a big part of why it exists, like you said, is because the people that feel comfortable uh, dealing on platforms like Binance and BitMEX and Durbit are people that are already into Bitcoin and they don't care about a 25% annual return. They're, they're looking for, you know, the home run that that, we, that Bitcoin, you know, has delivered in the past. Many people think it will continue to deliver in the future. And so, so they're not willing to take the 25% return. But if you are, you know, like USD denominated a more traditional fund, or you simply have access to really uh, cheap capital from, you know, a credit line at a bank or whatever, uh, it's a great way to, you know, capture that that spread. Mm-hmm. And that all brings the question of why has this not been arbitraged out by now? Wouldn't there have been some big, you know, maybe not Bitcoin people, but or someone doing maybe a Bitcoin person, but doing it using their US dollar money uh, or some kind of USD fund coming in to try and arbitrage this away? Or is it just fundamentally that, you know, the structural nature of Bitcoin is that there's all these people running in to buy it? And that's why this opportunity exists. Yeah, no, it is really interesting how it hasn't been arbitraged out. But it's it's also it's it's not a like a tiny market anymore. Like I think right now the total open interest on Bitcoin futures is over twenty two billion dollars. So so there is definitely you know billions of dollars performing the short side of this trade because I, I highly doubt there's you know billions of dollars willing to just short Bitcoin because that just wouldn't be a smart trade and you probably would have been wrecked by now. <laughs> but again, I, I think it comes down to uh, the people that are already in this space recognize like that Bitcoin is actually extremely valuable uh, to begin with. And so they don't feel comfortable, you know, trying to get the 25% return uh, because they think they can they can outperform that just by holding Bitcoin. And I think the funds or people that, you know, are willing to perform like such uh, unique trades that you're not dealing necessarily with with the Nasdaq or, or the New York Stock Exchange, you're dealing with you know Binance or or Bitmex. Uh, that they, they they would rather probably just allocate a small portion of, of their capital to maybe Bitcoin instead of trying to do a very like unique uh, trade that that they're definitely they probably necessarily don't understand. Like they don't understand the platforms, they don't really like Bitcoin, and they just aren't willing to you know take that risk or or jump into something like this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have that discussion around oh is Bitcoin priced in right? Is the halving priced in? And I think the answer in one sense is that a lot of the world has not woken up to that yet. And that, yeah, there's a few hardcore Bitcoin people, but those Bitcoin people are probably already all in or as allocated as they can get. 
as they can reasonably be. And so it's just a matter of time until the rest of the world starts to wake up to that. And so maybe that's also the answer that, you know, all this money stored in stocks and bonds and real estate. And again, coming back to what he was saying, it's relative valuation, right? Those stocks still exist. It's just that people in their mind have to change their relative valuation of stocks and bonds and real estate, put it into Bitcoin. And that's just this process over time of the world waking up to this. Uh, what's your view on that idea? Yeah, uh, the I love like talking about the efficient market processes or hypothesis and, and thinking about it because, you know, you would you would think that that if, if markets were extremely efficient or perfectly efficient, then we would it would Bitcoin would either be worthless or there would be hyper Bitcoinization. So it's, it's kind of funny how we're, we're somewhere in the middle. I think the EMH or efficient market hypothesis is typically like fairly accurate because I think free markets are the best known way to price goods, services and investments. And that's why, you know, capitalism works significantly better than communism. Um, but I think for markets to be perfectly efficient, I, I think that's that's somewhat kind of wrong. I think it's kind of wrong for, I guess, two reasons. I think one is just because, you know, information uh, is very accessible doesn't mean uh, a majority of, of capital in the world has actually looked at the information. And then number two is even if the, the, the individuals that have capital to allocate have looked at all the information, it doesn't necessarily mean you understand the implications and like the interactions between this information and the actual world. And so, again, it just comes down to individuals making best possible decisions that they can based off information that they uh, digested and and what they understand from that information. And I think what we've seen is is over time, over the last decade, more and more individuals and corporations are are learning what Bitcoin is. They're learning that it's you know number go up technology. It's, it's the world's best savings technology. And I think what we're seeing is is markets trending towards efficiency. I think that's part of the main reason that that Bitcoin has been you know the best performing asset, uh, even risk adjusted if you're looking at the Sharpe ratio. So like looking at its return over its volatility, Bitcoin still uh, dominates uh, traditional markets, whether it's equities, bonds, or whatever. And I think what we've seen is, is Bitcoin uh, uh, continues to, to trend towards the, it's the most efficient price. And that's why we have these crazy, parabolic, repeated bull runs. An interesting idea. So for a long time, people were saying, oh, look, this GBTC, there's a massive premium. And now recently, that's been arbitraged closer you know, down. And I wonder, could a similar thing happen here in the, you know, in this whole futures can tango in Bitcoin. Maybe it's a matter of time. Uh, and what would it look like if somebody were to, or if people collectively, or enough people collectively, were to go and eliminate that um, by you know doing this trade? Yeah, absolutely. So so back in so so throughout Bitcoin's history, like the futures market hasn't been super developed until recently. But in 2017, Bitcoin did trade in contango. But then back in 2018, I think for most of the year, uh, it traded traded in backwardation. So that meant the futures price was actually less than the spot price. And that's because uh, more people wanted to be short Bitcoin while it was going down uh, than more people that wanted to be long. And so it definitely can switch out of Contango, certainly possible. But I think as long as the market is generally bullish on Bitcoin, uh, you know, for, you know, the foreseeable, you know, next few months or the next few quarters, uh, we can expect it to still be around. And, and again, like it will be interesting to see if enough capital uh, or individuals decide to, to allocate their capital to this trade, this USD denominated trade, it will be interesting to see what happens because to, to, to make this trade, you need to buy Bitcoin um, and to use Bitcoin as collateral to, to, to short a futures contract. 
And so, like I said earlier, it's it's kind of sucking up the the, the supply of Bitcoin anyway. So I think uh, if you really take a deep dive into this trade and, and, and what it is right now, you kind of realize, oh, well, why should I make this trade when this trade is going to drive up price of Bitcoin? Just the, you know, the fact that this trade exists, this arbitrage opportunity exists, it's actually going to drive up the price of Bitcoin because it's sucking up more supply. Might as well just buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and then you kind of get down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and you, you know, you, you recognize it's it's the world's best monetary good. So, so some people may, may discover this and may start the trade and then they may just decide to hold Bitcoin instead. But yeah, again, it, it, if there is a, a, a significant downturn in price that's somewhat sustainable, maybe we get up to crazy high levels and markets gets overheated and, and people, uh, the price just starts to decline, then it can it, the trade can certainly go away and the contango uh yeah, it could also be that maybe now, rightly or wrongly, right? I'm, I'm not saying, uh, you know, stock to flow is correct or stock to flow is wrong or whatever, because I'm sure there'll be debates about that too. But rightly or wrongly, there might be a bunch of people who try to trade that model and they might try to say, oh, look, we've gone above the model. We're overshooting. Now it's time to sell some. And that fact may also uh, contribute and become a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But now, obviously, uh, some of those people might end up getting wrecked if they try to sell because, mm-hmm. you know, the price might just completely blast away and go even higher so they could get in trouble there but maybe that's another possibility there yeah no it'll be really interesting to see you know what actually happens with uh regarding the stock to flow model because i definitely do think that that people will uh try to use it as like some sort of top indicator especially the cycle uh but the problem with this cycle i would say is we're like at a, at a point where there's basically unprecedented physical policy and unprecedented monetary policy and so i think traditionally you know, top indicators may not be that helpful, um, especially this cycle. And so I think it will be interesting to see how many, uh, you know, supposedly smart money, smart Bitcoin uh, does try to maybe exit or take some chips off the table if stock to flow model or other indicators begin to say we're overheating. Um, And again, I don't, I I wouldn't feel very comfortable uh, selling a significant amount of my position or my Bitcoin at all. Um, But I'm sure that there probably will be a few people that, that, that may think that that they're making a great decision. Problem is, if they if they come out with some crazy UBI uh, uh, stimulus bill after that, that gets funded uh, basically directly from the Fed buying Treasuries or you know euros or however however they want to do it, the price could just keep shooting up. So it'll, it will be super interesting to see how that develops over time. Great. What else are you looking at? Uh, are you able to maybe hint for any listeners any other pieces of work that you're working on or research or things that you're looking at? Yeah. So I'm 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 publishing a lot of research on. I'm publishing something uh, probably in the next couple of weeks just about the bond market and how basically bonds and Bitcoin are a two asymmetric trades, except Bitcoin is an asymmetric asymmetric trade to the upside and bonds are an asymmetric trade to the downside. But other than that, uh, I'm, I'm just doing research at Mimesis Capital, which is you know a very Bitcoin-focused family office based out of Taiwan. And and like Michael Saylor, uh, we, we believe that you know Bitcoin uh, is you know a massive wealth transfer. It's a great opportunity. And so we've adopted uh, Bitcoin as our treasury reserve asset and, you know, just our investment benchmark. And so in addition to to the research that we've been doing, uh, I help do due diligence and just general research on Bitcoin startups uh, in the ecosystem. And so that's pretty much uh, what I've been doing. And and if anyone has, you know, more research that they want me to do and, and take the time to write and share with the community, definitely uh, DM me on Twitter and, and reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, any any additional ideas. Excellent. Where can people find you and find Mimesis Capital? Yeah. So I am on Twitter. I'm 
three capital and three as in I, I, I. So you can definitely find me on Twitter, uh, follow me, DM me. My DMs are open. And then as far as Mimesis Capital, uh, you can find us online, mimesiscapital.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter. It's also at Mimesis Capital. And that's also in my Twitter bio as well. Excellent. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Glad to uh, be on the other side of, of the uh, the headphones, I guess, this time. Our friends and family are not bullish enough on Bitcoin, so make sure you share this episode with them. They can get the show notes and the transcript at stefanlevera.com slash 267. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.